guys and welcome to the final episode of the first series of the Real World podcast. So this is the last episode with us as your hosts, Sophie, Anushka and Esme. Um, and we will be handing over to the next geography reps who will start the new season or series of this podcast. So today we're coming at you with a European geopolitics episode, obviously still including our climate change segment and something you've always wanted to know segment. And I will hand over to Esme for the introducing segment. So um, on the topic of European geopolitics, I decided to cover someone who you've probably all heard the name of, but maybe don't know that much in depth about. So I decided to do Vladimir Putin, who is the current leader of Russia. So he was an intelligence officer in the KGB for 16 years before resigning and beginning his political career in 1996. So under President Boris Yeltsin, he served as the director of the Federal Security Service and the secretary of the Security Council before being appointed as the prime minister in 1999. After the resignation of Yeltsin, Putin became acting president and less than four months later was elected outright to his first term as president and was again re-elected in 2004. However, back then he was constitutionally limited to two consecutive terms as president. So Putin served as prime minister again from 2008 to 2012 under Medvedev and returned to the presidency in 2012 in an election marred by allegations of fraud and protests. He was then re-elected again in 2018. In April of 2021, following a referendum, he signed into law a constitutional amendment, including one that would allow him to run for re-election twice more, potentially extending his presidency to 2036. So, um, more on what we're discussing today. Putin's views on the USSR has a large impact on the um, on the past Ukraine-Russia tension and conflict. So uh, Vladimir Putin lamented the collapse of the Soviet Union three decades ago as the demise of what he called historical Russia and said the economic crisis that followed was so bad that he was forced to moonlight as a taxi driver. He said that they turned that Russia turned into a completely different country and what had been built up over a thousand years was largely lost, saying that 25 million Russian people in newly independent countries suddenly found themselves cut off from Russia, part of what he called a major humanitarian tragedy. We'll be re-exploring this later, but now I'll pass on to Sophie to talk about something that you've always wanted to know. So today I'm going to be talking to you a little bit about the underwater park in Austria. So this is like a normal park during the winter. So, you know, just a normal park, just like Richmond Park um, in London. But during the summer, the snow melts and um, the park becomes submerged underwater. And so this means that all the trees and the human-made features such as benches and footbridges and picnic tables all become submerged underwater. So it's quite an interesting phenomenon and people go snorkeling instead of walking in the park like normal. Um, some people go diving and there are some really cool pictures online. So if you want to see a little bit more about this, look up some videos. It's, it's a really interesting place. That sounds really interesting. I'll have to have a look at that. So for this week's climate change segment, we will be talking about the new electric car battery plant, British Volt, which has secured funding for its proposed factory. British Volt will allow the mass production of electric car batteries in the UK 
so that the UK can increase the amount of electric cars that it produces. The government already wants to increase the amount of cars because they are going to ban the sale of new petrol and diesel cars by 2030. So this will be a key part of the UK's plan to become um, one of the fastest growing markets for electric cars. The battery plant is said to create 3,000 jobs and should be able to produce enough battery cells for more than 300,000 electric vehicles by the end of the decade. It's located in Northumberland, well it will be located in Northumberland, um, and if the batteries were not made here it would mean that other car makers would be unlikely to set up and also batteries are really heavy to transport so it's better to produce them locally unlike a lot of other car parts that are imported from other countries. So for today's main segment we'll be going on to the um, EU and European geopolitics so I thought I would start with a bit of history and sort of background about the EU and why it was formed. So as many of you will probably know the EU is an economic and political union between 27 European countries the early form of the EU was called the European Economic Community, which was created in 1958 in the aftermath of World War II. It was to encourage economic cooperation between European countries because it was thought that if countries traded with each other, then they would become economically independent and therefore less likely to have conflict because they rely on each other being stable countries and stable economies. So the European Economic Community included only six European countries, which were Belgium, Germany, France, Italy, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. And then since 1958, 22 countries have joined and the UK has left. So the EU has had numerous achievements. It's been successful in creating a huge single market. And although it began as a purely economic union, it has also become an organisation spanning many different policy areas, including climate, security, justice, and migration. The name changed from European Economic Community to the European Union as we know it today in 1993 to reflect this change in role. The EU has successfully facilitated more than half a century of peace and stability, has raised living standards for many people and has launched a single European currency, the euro, which is present in many EU countries. The free movement of people between European well, EU countries has also made it easier for people to live and work in other countries in Europe and support economic growth in many of those countries. However, with the UK leaving the EU, this might signal the downfall of the EU and highlight some of its flaws that might become more present. We'll see. Yeah, so in terms of the EU and Brexit, obviously since the UK have left, we've seen sort of some increasingly hostile and unstable relationships within the EU and between the EU and other countries such as China um, and Russia and India, who are obviously growing superpowers. So we've seen um, increased tensions, and this is the ways such as economic, social and geopolitical challenges, um, especially regarding climate change, as we saw at COP26. And EU law um, has its own laws and policies which override national policies in some cases. So that was part of the reason why the UK um, wanted to leave the EU. And so a little bit about energy in the EU. So by 2020, at least 20% of the EU's energy should come from renewables. And this was according to an agreement made a few years ago. And by 2030, at least 32% should be coming from renewables. 
So in 2020, renewable energy sources made up 37.5% of gross electricity consumption in the EU, which was up from 34.1% in 2019, so it is making progress. So wind and hydropower accounted for more than two-thirds of the total electricity generated from renewable sources, which is obviously really good regarding progress towards preventing climate change. So now Esme is going to talk to you a little bit about Ukraine and Russia and the growing tensions there. And then later on, I'll talk a little bit more about um, gas in Russia and the move to hydrogen. Yeah, so thanks, Sophie, for bringing me on to um, the second part of our main segment, which, as many of you will probably be aware of, is the escalating tension of Ukraine and Russia. So there has been a previous ongoing conflict for the last seven or so years, um, but I will be more discussing the sort of recent escalation. So Moscow, obviously in Russia, sees Ukraine as an important buffer to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, otherwise known as NATO. However, the Ukraine sees Russia as an aggressor that has already occupied parts of Ukrainian territory, which I'll talk about later. So for context, in the 9th century, a group of people called the Rus moved their capital to Kyiv, a legacy President Vladimir Putin has often invoked when arguing that Ukraine is bound to Russia. So Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union until it declared its independence in August of 1991, and it served as a strategic part of the Soviet Union, with a large agricultural industry and important ports on the Black Sea. According to a survey, Russian is used at home by 43 to 46% of the population in Ukraine, which in other words is a similar proportion to Ukrainian. And Russophones make a majority of the population in eastern and southern regions of Ukraine, especially in the Autonomous Republic of Crimea, where they make up 97% of the population. So what does NATO have to do with this? So NATO was founded in 1949 to, as the US saw it, protect against Soviet aggression. The alliance has since expanded to 30 countries, including the former Soviet republics of Lithuania, Estonia and Latvia. The treaty states that if one nation is invaded or attacked by another country, all nations in NATO will collectively mobilise in its defence. So in light of this, the Kremlin, or the Russian government, is demanding guarantees from NATO that Ukraine and Georgia, another former Soviet republic that Russia briefly invaded in 2008, would not join the alliance. If they did join, they would be one of the two countries that bordered Russia in the West which obviously Russia sees as a uh, spreading influence of the West towards its borders. So ongoing conflict. In 2014, Russian military forces annexed Crimea on the Black Sea. Moscow-backed separatists also took control of the eastern industrial regions of Donetsk and Luhansk, which are on on Russia's border. The ongoing conflict in eastern Ukraine has claimed some 14,000 lives. So what's happened recently? Russia, in the last few weeks, has amassed more than 100,000 Russian soldiers on the borders with Ukraine and in Crimea in recent weeks. But Russia denies it is planning an invasion. Moscow says it can move Russian troops wherever it wants and that any of its acts are defensive. 
Russian officials, including the President Putin, have for their part warned against NATO expanding eastwards. The EU response has been varied and not very unified due to uh, Germany, Austria and Hungary being more closely linked to the Russian economy than, for example, Portugal or the Netherlands. And due to the makeup of the EU, it requires unanimity to pass any political actions. EU diplomats have also been busy preparing punitive sanctions and have said that these sanctions would have to be implemented within 48 hours of an, of an invasion by Russia. Do you think that the lack of unity between the country's actions is kind of marking the future of how EU countries might be acting more individually? That is quite interesting and I think as you said, as you were talking about with Brexit and um, obviously the UK leaving the EU seen as, might be seen as sort of the EU splintering and becoming more individual. But I think in this case, as Sophie's going to explore, Russian gas is very, very essential to Europe currently. Um, and so I think that is one of the main reasons why it is divided, which obviously doesn't apply in every case because not every sort of foreign conflict, international conflict is to do with Russia. Very interesting. (laughs) Um, So it remains unclear whether these possible sanctions include plans to sever Russia from the global electronic payment system, which is called SWIFT, or end the Russian-German pipeline called Nord Stream 2. So this brings me on to what Sophie's going to discuss, which is sort of an extension of what she was discussing with energy, um, and talk about Russian gas and the move to hydrogen. Yeah, so as we're trying to phase out fossil fuels, hydrogen may be used as it produces very few emissions, and so therefore will help to make Europe less vulnerable to energy losses and help to reduce the impacts of climate change. So green hydrogen, which is one type of hydrogen, is made from water and it uses renewable energy and many countries plan on using this to become net zero. So many countries are trying to become less dependent on others for their energy to prevent issues such as those that we talked about earlier in Ukraine and helping to become more self-sufficient. So Germany, France and Japan are the biggest investors in hydrogen power and hydrogen can be converted into ammonia for long distance shipping or transported through existing natural gas pipelines. So although people are trying to become more self-sufficient, we can also import it from other places. So Saudi Arabia is a big producer of oil and gas at the moment, and they've also said that they aim to use hydrogen more in the future to replace fossil fuels, um, sort of showing how this is going to become a much bigger source of energy. You may have heard of blue hydrogen, but this is made up of natural gas, so green hydrogen is best as a more sustainable option in preventing any more emissions. Um, so Russia, as we as, as May was talking about, Recently, there have been concerns that they may cut off gas supplies to Europe because of the growing tensions with Ukraine. And obviously, this could be a really big problem because the, um, countries in Europe do rely on Russian gas for a lot of their energy. So Germany is an example of this, and they get large amounts of gas from Russia. So the US has helped to prepare for the diversion of natural gas supplies from around the world to Europe in the event that Russia does cut others off to help prevent the impacts from being so bad. And the US is helping its European allies in an attempt to show Putin a united and coherent front so that he's deterred um, from invading Ukraine and other surrounding nations. 
So this is quite an interesting instance where things, you know, at A-level you learn about the carbon cycle and energy and what type of energy we should use. And this is obviously um, coinciding with superpowers and geopolitics and how to resolve conflict through it. So all in all, very interesting. So that is the end of today's episode. The next episode that will be released will be with Jasmine and Ash, the new geography reps. We've really enjoyed doing this podcast and we hope that you've enjoyed listening to it. There might be a few changes as Jasmine and Ash um, take their own spin on the podcast, but we hope you enjoy it with them and it's been great. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening.